right, this is Darker Days Radio, coming at you with uh, episode number 89, Death is Not the End. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hello. Um, yeah, I am sweltering because we have also on the horizon Storm Chris in the UK. Uh, and it's also, of course, it is Friday the 13th, and it has oh, been yeah. an interesting day for Friday the 13th. Yeah, so pretty good. Uh, I've not been doing much gaming, preparing for things like Blue Dot Festival I'm going to, which is science-y type music thingy. Um, yeah, oh, a pain Soul Wars. That's the only other thing that's unrelated to this podcast. I've been painting ghosties. Nice, nice, good. Yeah, uh, we also have two very uh, cool individuals with us here to uh, talk about some cool stuff going on over at White Wolf. So we, of course, have Karim. Hello. And we've got the gentleman gamer himself, Matt Dawkins. How's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Welcome. We finally got both of you on the show. I think this is the first time. Yes, definitely is. But you'll never see us in the same room. No. Oh, no, this is the second time, because it was at Dragon Meet. We had our little coffee meetup. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had an interview with you uh, with uh, Dave and Eddie, didn't yes. I? That, that was a, a noisy, bustling interview that I've never seen, never experienced a bar with so much crockery being rattled in it constantly. <laughs> but I thought the sound of the coffee machine in the background really added something to that interview. It added some ambience, that's for sure. Mm. Right. There's quite a few things to get through because there's been some interesting White Wolf news and there's stuff coming up. Um, so, Mike, should we rattle through what news bits there are that are of interest to people? Yeah, I can. I think we can cover it uh, pretty quick here. So today, White Wolf held an AMA, Ask Me Anything, on Twitch about V5. They tackled some tough questions and discussed various social aspects of the game, particularly about the Bruja write-up. So we definitely recommend listeners check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got, obviously, V5 release at, uh, at Gen Con coming up. And Gen Con is obviously on the horizon. Uh, we'll have our roving reporter, Chig, there at Gen Con, and he'll have his uh, famous little Chig report for us. Um, so I think he's also booked in to talk to um, to you guys from White Wolf and uh, the others who will be attending. Uh, so I, hopefully you can say something more to him once you've revealed certain things, even at Gen Con. And also uh, announced we've had the Werewolf Storytellers Vault. So if you want to make your own uh, World of Darkness content for Werewolf, uh, for whichever flavor of Werewolf you want, um, you should have check that out. You know, you've got favorite setting that you've used or an adventure or characters just write them up and get them out there it's a great way to um you know try and get your foot in the door with uh, being a writer for uh, rpgs in general uh what other news is there mike well our friends over at onyx path are putting out some great stuff uh in particular there's a geist the sin eater second edition kickstarter going on which is uh, really cool i think uh we might actually do that uh cover that in a future episode so that'd be really neat and of course yep. um there's a new Promethean book coming out, which I'm really psyched for, for the uh, the second edition, which is going to be a Night Horrors book in that line. Mm-hmm. So definitely uh, something to check out in the future. And then we've got some other episodes coming up. So yeah, as I said, Geist is definitely something we need to talk about. Uh, we will have our V5 review um, 
And we also have a actual play recording of Vampire 5th Edition that we've already recorded. It's there in the vault waiting to come out. Um, and yeah, I'm sure it's filled with some kind of... Um, listening back to it, it's kind of hilarious at some points and kind of, you know, gruesome in others. So hopefully people enjoy hearing the system in action. But I think that's everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. So we should definitely jump on over to a uh, pretty in-depth interview here with the folks over at White Wolf. Classic World of Darkness. So, uh, Matt, Kareem, let's uh, kind of do a little icebreaker here. Uh, let you guys introduce yourselves a little bit. Maybe go over your gamer street cred. You know, talk about how you got into gaming and uh, kind of your first breaks into the industry as well. Yeah, after you, Kareem, age before beauty. Wait a minute. Age before? Oh, man. Okay. I got the short end of the stick. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Kareem Wamar, and I work as the editor-in-chief on White Wolf, and I've also been co-developing uh, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, as well as acting as a system designer for large parts of the game. My gamer cred, as you stated, it's... Um, I started off with role-playing, as many Swedes did in um, 1984, with the Swedish role-playing game Drakar och Demoner, which was basically a Swedish version of the old RuneQuest basic role-playing that then took off on its own and did its thing. In 1990, Swedish role-playing kind of got a, um, a, phenom a phen phenomenon um, that was called Cult, which was the first real sort of urban horror game that we've ever, I think, none of us had ever seen anything like it before. And uh, it was quite a unique thing in the world. It's been translated into multiple languages since then. And only a year after that, Vampire the Masquerade came out. Uh, and those two together really created an upsurge of, of uh, this kind of of gaming, of which I was a part of. Uh, other than that, I do a lot of other gaming as well. I've done a lot of miniature gaming, um, board gaming, role-playing of all kinds. But uh, the games that really sort of put me on this path, I have to say, would be Vampire the Masquerade and also Mage the Ascension when that came out a couple of years after that. And that really sort of made me. It's <laughs> It sounds kind of... Uh, um, ostentatious it's made me into the man i am today gaming wise my first breaks in gaming uh it's been a bit to and fro i worked uh, a lot um with uh, designing larps and pervasive gaming uh and i worked at paradox interactive with content for hearts of iron 4 before moving on to white wolf as the editor-in-chief there um and, uh, well, that was how I came to join the team there with um, the V5 team. Nice. Very interesting. My road wasn't anywhere near as uh, interesting or, or uh, <laughs> uh, I guess, my, my, my game, a cred, such as it is. Uh, so I started playing fighting fantasy novels, the Choose Your Own Adventure things by Steve Jackson, presented by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone when I was uh, just a child. I loved the idea of being able to tell a story and I'd do it in the playground with the other children at school. 
So I, I would run them, things like Warlock of Firetop Mountain and Legend of Zagor and things like that, and I'd make them play for me. So I was doing a, the GMing before I was role-playing, and there was very much a lull until I was at college and looking up a website for that was covering the Baldur's Gate video games, because I love Baldur's Gate 2 specifically. That was a very good game. The, one of the librarians at the college library uh, placed his hand on mine while it was navigating the mouse in a very creepy way <laughs> and said, what you want to look at is uh, Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> and or it might have even been TSR.com at the time. But he directed me to D&D. And for some reason, I had completely been blind to the fact that despite the fact I'd been reading all these novels about Drizzt de Werden and Elminster, and I'd been playing all these video games set in the Forgotten Realms, it completely bypassed me that this was the Dungeons and Dragons tabletop role-playing game. Mm. And he told me, this video game you're looking up is a D&D game. I said, oh, okay. And he said, I'd like to take you to a club. And I was a bit worried. But he said, I'd like to take you to a club this Sunday. <laughs> and he was heavily breathing. He's a Tory councillor now uh, where I live. So, <laughs> you know, that doesn't so, um, Hello, John. And so, we, um, so I went to this club against my better judgment and played my first tabletop role-playing game. And it wasn't D&D. I went on the wrong week. I ended up playing the Hercules and Xena, the Legendary Journeys. That was my first ever tabletop RPG, and it was enough to make me not want to come back. But luckily, D&D was being run the next week, and so I got to play in a big Forgotten Realms campaign. My first character was 16th level. It was ridiculous, ridiculous fun. But after that, from that point, I have role-played and never, never stopped. And it didn't take me long, about a year into it, to discover Vampire the Masquerade, which I guess was on its revised or third edition at that point, and a lot of the other World of Darkness games. And I was running Vampire almost as soon as I got it, some dreadful games. But I loved the, the setting so much. I remember my first source book for Vampire was Clan Book Ravnos. I don't know why. I think I just liked the cover, because the old those clan books had fantastic covers they really drew your eye mm. and so that just started a long love affair with with role-playing games especially horror role-playing games just like Karim I was drawn into cult as well although cult was considerably more difficult to find over here uh, it just wasn't really available in gaming stores like what uh, like the white wolf games and the wizards of the coast games and so on and I think, in fact, the, the third edition, which I don't remember being very good, was out of print by the time I really got into role-playing. But I picked them all up second-hand and still have them to this day. Uh, and so I carried on role-playing. Occasionally, because I was a big fan of Vampire and the World of Darkness, I would see on the White Wolf website, they would ask people to submit uh, samples to see whether you could get hired. And I did that on occasion because I really loved the world. I heard back occasionally. I got hired to write for the Vampire the Masquerade trivia game in about 2005 or 2006. And you may not have heard of that, and that's because it didn't come out. And I know why it didn't come out, and it's because it was awful. When all of the writers had submitted all their trivia questions, I thought, who the hell would ever play this? But I probably shouldn't say that because we might release it, and it'd be fantastic if we did it now. 
Um, so eventually, through various trials and tribulations, I got hired by Onyx Path Publishing to work on uh, Mummy the Curse for Chronicles of Darkness, or New World of Darkness, as it was back then. And subsequent to that, I've worked on pretty much every World of Darkness line. In fact, yes, I have worked on every World of Darkness line now. I've worked on most of the Chronicles of Darkness lines. Uh, did a little stint at Paradox Interactive working on uh, an unannounced video game, which was good fun. I worked on V5, of course, with Karim and the rest of the team. And now I am working with White Wolf again in one capacity or other. Uh, and yeah, it's been a great, great journey. Good fun. Seems like you got into Vampire around about the same time I did then. Because I got into Vampire when Arcane Magazine did their list of top 50 RPGs. And I saw it there, and that's when I grabbed it. So... You young whippersnappers. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, and as I said, so you're 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 working in a freelance capacity then for both White Wolf and Onyx Path, developing things. And also, one thing you haven't mentioned is you're also developing your own game with Onyx Path, which is uh, they came from beneath the seas. Oh, so. good name drop, Chris. Well yeah. done. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll only cover this in brief because I know that isn't the subject of this podcast. But yeah, I uh, pitched a game to Onyx Path a year or so ago. They came from beneath the sea, which is a B movie sci fi horror game, very farcical 1950s B movie, aliens in rubber suits. Characters yeah. with quip cards, cinematics like missing reels and deleted scenes that you can play at crucial points. It's all good fun. Uh, but yeah, that's something Onyx Path are hoping to kickstart later this year with any luck. Uh, and yeah, I moonlight with Green Ronin and Chaosium and Cubicle 7 and various, whoever will give me money, basically. I, I, I don't mind. I'm, I'm not loyal or proud. <laughs> right. <laughs> and with that, I think there's a good point we move on to talking about Vampire Fifth Edition then. Uh, because if there's a group of uh, things that lurk in the night that are hardly loyal and uh, always up for any old cash, it's vampires. <laughs> um, right. So um, I think the biggest question with this is it's Vampire the Masquerade, it's the fifth edition. Um, obviously, there is a continuation of plot to whatever extent. Uh, we can get to that a bit less later. But what do you feel w was the main objective with this new edition? What do you feel was the, the crucial thing to go, this is Vampire the Masquerade for, for this generation? Because this isn't a nostalgia piece like V20. This is a, a true new edition with new mechanics a very different look in terms of how it's laid out. Um, yeah, you know, what, what, is the, what was the main objective? Well, I, can, I think I can try to answer that. I think you've hit your head on, uh, on the nail <laughs> expression uh, when you say that it's, it's not just a continuation, but it's a, it's a completely new edition uh, that should feel contemporary and um, recent in a way that, the first edition felt when you picked that one up because the mm. first edition was mind-blowing at the time the game had you know illustrations of real people amazing team with bradstreet images it was full of quotes from the real world everything from you know 
quotes from Red Hot Chili Peppers, Faith No More, or quotes from the Bible, or uh, poets, Yeats, I think. I think even Ice-T was in there with something on a body count. And that felt so real, that felt so authentic. And then you had the, the game was about these vampires. You had this clash of the extreme, um, the grounded way the game was written together with these amazing creatures that made them seem so real and so credible. Um, the game was something completely different. Even, I'd say to an even, even more so than Cult, to be honest, uh, which, which went further in some regards, but not as far in others. So it was a real, um, it's a real treasure. And in, in some ways, we try. We want to try to you know, recapture that magic and create a game that feels as fresh today in looks and mechanics and themes as that game felt 25 years ago, or even more. Of course, 25 is it 27 years? Maybe, yeah. Um, so uh, that's the main, the core objective of the new edition is that then of course it is a continuation of the vampire the masquerade legacy but it's a continuation and not a rehash it's a way of looking at how would this game look today uh in the world of 2018. uh i think the main uh, experience of the game that we want to deliver and that is another one of the core objectives is that you should feel that you are playing a vampire a problem, I think, with the game as it moved on was it became less about playing a vampire and more about playing a clan or a sect. The vampire, uh, the core vampire experience, the feeding, the hunger, all of that got kind of sidelined uh, in favor of more powers, more paths, all kinds of, of goodies, really, but that, that sort of drowned out the uh, a lot, in my opinion, of the core experience, uh, the core uh, trait, if you will, of the game. So we are doing a refocusing on what it means to actually be a vampire and to try to reflect this in the mechanics so that a player, you're always reminded of that. Then, of course, with that in the background, we can add all of these amazing things from the world, such as the clans and the sects and the War of Ages, but all of that, when it rests upon this fundamental vampire, vampiric experience, become so much more interesting um, in my mind. And, and it really brings the game, I hope, to a, to a new level without taking away anything of, of the previous stuff. Um, so that's really, the, uh, that's really the, the, the core of it here, that the game should be... Um, because that's... You can strip away anything from a vampire. You can strip away the immortality. You can strip away the powers. You can strip away the sensitivity to sunlight. But you cannot strip away the fact that a vampire drinks blood. As soon as they stop drinking blood, they're not a vampire. All of the other stuff is, of course, part of the myth, part of the glamour, part of the fascination. But none of it is truly essential. And that is essential part is what we want to keep focusing on and um, act as as the hub of the experience, the main experience of the game. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, how about with, um, I mean, the main, again, going back to the main experience of the of the game as well, I mean, you, you're looking at the how, as you said, 
the game mechanics push forward that you know you're reminded of being a vampire but um i would say asking matt like what would you say with regards to the setting how you've developed it that it again reinforces that it also feels very contemporary and kind of matches a modern game rpg audience expectation of a horror game um I don't know. There's that, that's mostly quite a complicated question because horror games have evolved so much, and and uh, the RPG community, the player base, has obviously evolved as well. Oh well, no, it's a very good question. Uh, there's lots of different ways we can approach horror through vampire. Of course, there's lots of different genres of horror, and one of the strongest ones that's always been present in vampire is political horror. And one of the big problems with the third edition or revised edition vampire, for instance, was the downplaying of the Anarch movement. Made them look like bumbling idiots who couldn't hold on to their territory. They were constantly infighting, never progressive. And one of the most horrific things about the world we live in today is the way the left, in some cases, appears to be losing ground. Uh, and being a leftist myself, as I think uh, all of us, well, the majority of us are, uh, at the very least on team, uh, the the state of the world today is quite horrifying. Uh, the certain things on the horizon are quite scary. So if you're if you're a vampire, if you're a newly embraced vampire, you're, um, it's very unlikely. It could happen if you've got a generous sire, but it's very unlikely that you're just going to be accepted, arms open wide, into the Camarilla. The Camarilla of V5 is more elite. It is more of your 1%, maybe a bit broader than that, let's say 5%. But they want to lock down their cities. They want to cut out the elements they no longer want to associate with in society, which makes the Anarchs a more broad movement, but also sets the Camarilla up with a fantastic foil, a fantastic antagonist. Because if you're playing the Camarilla vampires, you want to hold on to what you've got and you want to grow your power base. If you're the Anarchs, you have every right to feel angry, you have every right to want to take down the man and fight back against the oppressive elders. And this takes you back all the way to the origins of vampire. Vampire First Edition had the idea that you were playing the downtrodden vampires. It wasn't necessarily always spelled out, but even some of the original books, like Chicago by Night, made the Anarch characters more sympathetic, whether by design or not. And while we're not making the Anarch sympathetic, they certainly have shades of bad among the hopeful the political horror of being squashed, not even being accepted by your own kind because you're young, you're powerless. As far as they're concerned, you're a liability is something I think an awful lot of people feel in this world. It's very difficult to get on something as basic as the property ladder. It's very difficult to find a job after you've got a degree. You're overqualified all of a sudden. Now, put that into the frame of a world where you can no longer, or it's so difficult to associate with your mortal family, your mortal friends, your mortal lover. You can no longer go to your job and earn your money because you can't operate during the day. Everything you've got to do now is at night. It's by night. And you can only drink blood. That puts you in a very select group of monsters. And a lot of those monsters don't want to know you. So you are ostracized, not only by your nature, because you can't 
you, you are a danger to the humans you love, but also by your own people, the kindred that, despite their name, don't want to be your kindred spirits. Mm. So for me, part of the thing that really enticed me into V5 and part of what's a big element of both the Camarilla book and the Anarch book is that political divide, the sociological divide and um, the horror of having to live with a situation like that. It's on one level very mundane, but the way we, we, we layer in the, I guess, vampire mythos as well, because, of course, then you've got um, the Church of Cain and you have various other elements that are going to be trying to manipulate people, shift them around to their various whims, allows us to take that mundane horror and elevate it to something that's suitably vampire. Cool. I think that's it's really interesting how how you've the alteration of the Camarilla to be this more select group rather than you know being more open that they've retracted and they've become this very very select group of a very small group of people which is vampires in themselves because they're not very numerous and how that does reflect our modern society and that I like the idea that you've hinted at there with the the church of Canaan is that you know the whole mess of because the Anarchs are not one singular body. They're a lot of different factions. They all don't agree exactly how they're going to express their rebellion or what the end result is going to be. That I can see there's a lot of fun to have within that group because they can be manipulated by so many other, other factions and sets that we may have not seen in the setting for a long time, like the Church of Cain. Well, yeah, I call it the Church of Cain because, of course, I'm a loyalist to the Church of Cain, but but everyone else will call it the Cainite Heresy. And the Cainite Heresy were a faction introduced in the Dark Ages, and in fact, Ken Height, who is on V5, wrote the Cainite Heresy book, or at least a large portion of it. And so it was only natural that he gave them a uh, rebirth in V5, perhaps. Um, But you're right. In in the past, there was always a certain way of looking at the Camarilla or a certain way of looking at the Anarchs. And that ecclesiastical horror was often um, relegated to the Sabbat. And when I say relegated, I don't mean the Sabbat were worse. I mean, it was quite difficult to move that in to your Camarilla and Anarch games. Mm. I mean, the Sabbat, they got all the good stuff, really. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, yeah, to be honest, ecclesiastical trappings, rituals, you know, rites, uh, scarification, tattoos, all kinds of things like that. The Sabbat got all of that, and that I'm, was cool. I'm going to say up front and be very honest. Fortunately, we've had a, been able to read, and as I said, play through V5. That The things that you're saying are exactly what has made me personally very excited for this book, because the things that you're talking about, the things that when I saw, when, when, when Requiem came out, that diversity of things that were very easy to plug and play into my setting, that was exciting. And now having those options, but also with the Vampire the Masquerade meta plot and setting and things that are familiar to people, that excites me because for me that goes, I love vampires, but people like Vampire the Masquerade. It's like, I can get you to play this. 
but I also get to have my cake and eat it with all this other stuff. <laughs> like have the ecclesi ecclesiastical horror. I get to have this this ritual element. So but, that's why that, I find it very that, exciting. That, that is Almost that is as if we planned it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's one of those wonderful things. It's something I've, I'm doing with Contagion Chronicle as well for Chronicles of Darkness. It's a lot of people are calling these like the X and Y axis of characters, and with something like Contagion Chronicle and indeed Vampire the Masquerade Fifth Edition now. It's an X, Y, and Z axis. Yeah. Because if you take Requiem, which I love as well, um, the broad number of covenants a, and clans and, of course, bloodlines allows you essentially three layers to your character. And that was something that arguably you could put that into an older game of Vampire the Masquerade, but arguably previous editions were sect and clan. That was your mm -hmm. character. Now in V5, we have these things called lore sheets. And yes. lore sheets are both a mechanical and a uh, prose way of uh, giving your character a material attachment to a segment of the meta plot. One of the most keen complaints on Metaplot for years and years was, well, it's all lovely to read, but how am I supposed to use it in my mm -hmm. game? Or Beckett's a fantastic character, but what does it matter to me? And it's the Drizzt the Word and in Forgotten Realms problem. You know, he's going around saving the world. What am I supposed to do about it? Yeah. Well, with law sheets, you have your Canite heresy. You have Helena, the uh, Toreador Methuselah that's uh, dwelling in Chicago. You have Theo Bell and mm -hmm. other archetypal f uh, figures, events, relics, all these kinds of things that have existed in the vampire meta plot, most of which popped up at some point in Beckett's Jihad diary, mm. can now be part of your character's character sheet. You buy it like a background. So mm -hmm. just like you would buy resources or uh, your haven or similar, you buy three dots in contact Theo Bell. <laughs> Cool. And what does that mean? It, he isn't a contact in the sense that anyone else might be a contact. Having him as a contact means that you can call in, uh, let's say, a gang of Anarchs to run roughshod over an Elysium uh, in a horribly explosive way, which could act as a perfect distraction. You might only use once. You might only be able to use it once. In fact, it might say that on the law sheet. But it's a law sheet because it helps you affect the law of the game you're playing, as well as tapping into the law of the history of mm. Vampire Masquerade. And so we we're able to yeah bring these characters, these factions, things like the Knight Heresy, the Bahari, as well uh, into V5 as a playable part. So there's your. Z-axis, I suppose, when you've got your X for your sect and your Y for your clan. Cool. Uh, I'm I'm half expecting to see things from Dark Ages to to uh, reemerge at some point. You know, things like from Ashen Cults as well. Yeah. Um, or ramifications of certain things from the fall of uh, Byzantium and the events of that. Because like I played the I played through all of the books for. Uh, for Vampire the Dark Ages, so I'm quite, Oh, the uh, Constantinople by Night stuff yes, with Dream. Yes. Well, I don't think it's going to be any great spoiler. Sorry, Karim. Uh, I don't think we're going to lose any money for this. Um, but yes, the Dream, a lot of people are very fond of the Triumvirate, the Trinity of Michael, Antonius, and the Dracon, and all their stories surrounded by Constantinople by Night. The Dream is a lore sheet that you can have. 
which Ooh. allows your character to connect to the events from Constantinople by Night, a very popular second edition, well, Dark Vampire the Dark Ages book. And if you've got all five dots in this particular lore, it might be up to you to form the new trinity, make the new Constantinople, the new utopia for vampires. So, yeah. The last time we saw Vampire the Masquerade, and I say the last time, I'm going to say before the Gehenna book came out. So between that, before then and now, and the start of Gehenna, whenever the start of Gehenna actually is meant to have started, that could be a ne- could be a really nebulous kind of question and answer there. What has happened in the world, world of darkness? What has happened in Vampire Society to get us from when we last saw the game to V5? So, you know, how has the world evolved to bring us to the, the new conflicts that we're seeing, the new, you know, War of Ages? We're both too scared to answer. Um. <laughs> I'm trying to decipher the uh, the quiz. I'm I'm uh, I'm having a cheat sheet, sheet. What's it called? Cheat sheet here. Mm. Uh, so I'm wondering. Um, well, I'll tell you this. Yeah. Second Inquisition. Yeah. Second Inquisition. I mean, that's, that's, that's the that's the easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. The second, <laughs> yeah. And the Second Inquisition um, is this is something that has been kind of brewing uh, all through the end of the 90s when vampires ran roughshod over the world and and started, you know, approached the level of callous rule that had not been seen since the Middle Ages. Uh, they had their own internet going, Shreknet and, and um, a globe-spanning conspiracy and, you know, I'm about to say their own airlines, but, but not quite. <laughs> And then, of course, everything falls down uh, as a consequence of uh, the so-called war on terror, uh, the, the terrible events uh, of, of 9-11 and the things that follow lead to an upsurge in um, espionage and, and homeland espionage activities. And the Camarilla are, of course, quick to jump on the bandwagon, seeing it as a good way to get rid of the rivals. But this soon spirals out of hand and a number of intelligence powerful intelligence agencies around the world start to discover discrepancies weird properties that never seem to be demolished and uh, monies in bank accounts that stay around forever and all of these kind of weird traces and starting to try to put the pieces together going on a hunt for what they really don't know what some kind of anomalies maybe there's some kind of terrorist maybe there's some kind of conspiracy they don't have a clue but to a greater and greater extent they're starting to puzzle together the the secrets behind this immortal conspiracy sorry conspiracy and one by one they're coming after the vampires um not completely organized working you know at at sometimes at cross interests and all over the world, but to such an extent that, as you uh, mentioned in your uh, playthrough, Mm -hmm. London has been completely cleared of vampires. Oh, wow. I didn't didn't know the extent, so it's completely... I mean, that's just ample storytelling opportunity there. London has fallen. That is... um, that is a tidbit that I can spoil from the core book. Oh, Mithras. The greatest victories of the British branch of what the vampires call the Second Inquisition. Uh, I think the organization, the uh, 
the SO13, I think they're called, yeah. uh, have managed almost, you know, in a, in a war, in a clandestine war that has lasted for years, they have burnt out what they believe to be every single vampire in London. And before that, of course, uh, the, uh, the Vatican Secret Service, the entity, together with some American agencies, also blew up what was thought to be the vampire headquarters in Vienna. Of course, it wasn't the headquarters of all vampires, but of a certain breed of vampires. Mm. And uh, thank, yeah, thank God they got rid of that one uh, before yeah, he evolved into his true form. Exactly, because this is interesting, because now the Tremere clan is splintered, uh, and different factions within the Tremere are now vying for supremacy and have different agendas. And not every Tremere is bound or semi-bound to the council. Secrets are spread out everywhere. A lot is lost at the moment, mm. but everywhere rituals and old secrets are being dug up. And um, the Tremere have become a much more diverse and we think more playable clan as a result. I, um, I don't know. Uh, well, now I'm going to say this with a full caveat, that it may not make it to the finished Camarilla book. So <laughs> this may be a little piece of fiction that just remains on this podcast as an exclusive tidbit. But <laughs> on the basis that uh, Monty Coven, the host of Mithras, uh, fell with London, and I think it can be widely assumed that he did. He told his seneschal before telling his seneschal to get the hell out and take the cult with you, that he was looking forward to the fight this was the exact thing he'd been preparing for for 2,000 years. The invasion that the Roman Mithras, Roman god Mithras, was finally waiting for. So I like to think that when the Inquisition came knocking, other than warning his cult, he probably told no one else in London. And Mithras just watched all these other vampires get burned out and finally settle down for a big punch-up. Yeah, probably a bit more dramatic than a punch-up, but a huge, thrashing, bloody battle with Inquisitors that may have brought Mithras down, but as we know, when you bring Mithras down, he doesn't stay down. He'll always find a way to come back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, now, there is, there is, I think there is a great write-up on uh, on this part there coming for the Camarilla book, and uh, I think we uh, we need to get this bit in there as well. Cool. You, um, so... Okay, that that you know, we've got the Second Inquisition. We've got, you know, we've got the the top echelons of certain societies being literally you know decapitated. Really, where are we with Gehenna? Is the I so I got the impression uh, at Wilderness Berlin that Gehenna, you know, we didn't get the oh, it's the end of the world and all the vampires start to eat each other or whatever space <laughs> plague disease fungus, whatever it was. Is Gehenna going on currently? Well, that's it? going to be a matter of debate between vampire yeah, scholars. Sure. Um, we'll note this first, although it will sound like a cop-out, but here's the God's honest truth. The Gehenna sourcebook for Vampire the Masquerade Revised gives no official answer yeah. to what Gehenna is. So it's a list of options. Um, now, the Gehenna we're going with is pretty much as laid out in Beckett's Jihad Diary, 
uh, that, again, it's subject to different scholars' interpretations. But if Beckett is right, and there's no reason he should be, he believes that Gehenna is a rolling cycle and a great sacrifice has to be made each time to avert it. Now, you could look back at things like the death of the Salubri, the uh, explosion of the Ravnos antediluvian, and almost entire elimination of the Ravnos clan, um, which I'm sorry still happened. Uh, as I know oh, that sounds a bit flippant. <laughs> <laughs> the week, uh, the week of nightmare. Well, uh, you know, Karim can feel free to correct me. At least, as of my knowledge, it's <laughs> um, but I'm, ju- I'm just a humble contractor. Uh, <laughs> the point is that each time Gehenna happens, and there were seeds of this all the way back to first edition that Gehenna has happened before. You know, it's almost Battlestar Galactica. This is all happening. I was thinking of that. Yeah. <laughs> and it will all happen again. Uh, each time the vampires take a terrible blow, something is trying to wipe them out. And, you know, they lose a little bit more each time. And um, that oh, clearly something has been sacrificed or something prevented it coming to its apocalyptic conclusion, it might only be staving it off. It may still be rolling in the background. After all, there is a reason the Sabbat have, not entirely, not all of them, but many of the fanatical pack-driven Sabbat have migrated, uh, the ones who are in America, you know, the ones who are in Europe didn't need to travel so far, to greet, you could say, greet, um, wait, lay in wait, something or some things that are lurking or waking up in North Africa, in the area of the world we call the Middle East quite often, uh, in the Balkans area, that kind of part of, you know, when you look at your average map with Britain, (laughs) you know, almost dead in the middle, often what we call Central or Eastern Europe and North Africa, uh, there's something going on there that's drawn the Sabbat's attention. This could be a culmination of Gehenna. That this could be their attempts to stave it off. We probably won't find out the full details until the Sabbat book comes. But that what they are calling it is the Gehenna Crusade. Okay. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it seems like we've kind of covered the Camarilla, the Sabbat, and the Anarchs. Um, but I was really curious if you could mention maybe some other sects that might be uh, much more prevalent uh, than in previous editions of Vampire, maybe ones that are in the uh, the aforementioned Middle East, maybe? Um, uh, well, I'll do this very tentatively, if you like, Karim, because yeah, we have to do this very, very tentatively. Well, <laughs> we, we know that Martin did mention them at uh, World of Darkness Berlin, so I don't think it's spoiling anything to mention that they're in the book. Mm-hmm. The Ashira are a sect in its own right, which never really received much modern coverage outside of, I think, Cairo by night in Revised. Yep, correct. And, um, and of course, it appears in V20 in some parts, specifically Beckett's Jihad Diary. But it was mostly a Dark Ages sect. Um, they are a force in their own right, and where they sway their loyalties to when they're descended upon by hundreds of sabbats, uh, you know, call them what you will, will marauders, uh, bands of ravagers, 
no, they're not nice. When Sabats start invading your territory, whether they're coming after you or they're coming after something underneath you, you're not going to weather it. So the Ashura are going to be forced to make some hard decisions about their splendid isolation that they've been enjoying for you know several centuries, if not millennia. Um, but yeah, the Ashura are definitely prevalent. The followers of Set uh, and the Asamites are still there, but for various reasons, they've both undergone a rebrand. And that's that's covered in the core book to a very limited degree, but the we are now calling the Asamites the Banu Hakim. Because it's only it's only right, it's only natural that Clan Asamite is not going to call itself Clan Asamite. That's a very strong Anglicization of whatever their clan should be. And they call themselves the children of Hakim, the sons of Hakim, the brothers of Hakim, and the like. And so they are the Banu Hakim. Banu Hakim. Hakim. Exactly. And the followers of Set although they both of these clans will receive much more coverage in future books, uh, are now known as the Ministry more formally. And the reasons for that will become clear. Um, but from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it's, it's a rebrand. It, there's an awful lot of stigma that goes around in kindred society when someone introduces themselves as a follower of set, as well there should be, because almost every follower of set that was ever introduced in Vampire prior to this edition was a shit. So <laughs> <laughs> calling yourself a member of the ministry not only allows you a, a certain level of anonymity, but also allows you to exercise different faiths. The followers of Set are an interesting clan as a bit of a tangent because in previous editions they've it's always talked about how they've got their Norwegian arm, you know, uh, they have their Indian arm, they have a Babylonian arm, they have all kinds of different arms that of course wouldn't follow Set uh, as Set anyway. Yeah. So they are a ministry. They contain an awful lot of figures of faith, an awful lot of cults. Mm. Uh, going back to Constantinople by night, you have the, uh, I think, uh, Adenian, is it, or Edenix, uh, oh. who believe, who be- genuinely believe they're worshipping the biblical serpent, which is, interestingly, the version of the followers of Set that pretty much dominated second edition because they were going around acting like biblical serpents. So the ministry is a more diverse church, I think it's fair to say, than simply followers of Set, which still do definitely exist. But um, yeah, both clans have undergone a little bit of a makeover. I would like to like to address this here as well, that sort of people don't get their, uh, their hopes up. Uh, what uh, Matthew is talking about, the ministry and the Banu Hakim, are uh, not detailed in the core book. No. No, the core book still has the seven original Camarilla clans together with the Katiefs and the Finlads. But we are sowing the seeds for these um, for these other uh, members of Canine society. Um, and I think the, the rebranding of, sort of the, the renaming of the Asamites and the Banu Hakim has a simple reason, and it's that Asamite is a derogatory term. Mm. Mm. It's something you call 
somebody comes from the Middle East and then you call them immediately an Assamite. Are you a, an assassin? And I can guess that that was, that was what the Western vampires would call them behind their backs. But the official name for the Banu Hakim have always been the Banu Hakim because that is what they call themselves. We want to sort of show them a bit more respect in this edition in that way. And I think also that I agree that Matthew, that the whole uh, follower set uh, thing is very much in line with a clan, it tries to seep in everywhere. This, I think, goes towards actually answering one of our later questions we have in this block, in this first block about the setting, is that this is, when I, I think we put forward the question, what are some of the interesting radical changes to the setting? If anything, the changes are more to make the setting in places more, that you can connect with it in a more realistic fashion, that these people wouldn't call themselves a, this derogatory term. They would, they have their own name, they have their own society they're not this stereotype and it's quite exactly. that a lot of yeah. thoughts being put to diversify the setting so that if you are you know i've got a friend who uh, a friend who i've actually suggested that you need to talk to someone about this some things he's uh from he's lebanese he's he's a, been a reporter in syria he's mm -hmm. a, a massive vampire the masquerade fan he's got a tattoo on his arm of the angst wow. but the fact is he's reported on these places he has a very uh informed view of Syria and, and Egypt and all the rebellions that he's reported from there. And, you know, he's got his views on what I said, I'm 99% positive the Asimite will be treated in a very different, up to date, contemporary manner. And I feel it's quite clear from what you've said that you are, you're getting to the roots of what their society is, not how this Western yeah, there was a lot of Orientalism, if you yes. like, uh, exotification of them. They were the Arabs, and of course, they were always the assassins and the killers yeah. and the, well, almost the terrorists, which we felt was a very, very bad way to treat yeah. an yes. entire, this entire continent. So we really wanted to, and, and this is another, another reason that we are bringing, sort of lifting out the Shira because it kind of felt like the entire Middle East was represented by the Asamites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But kind of like the clan Arab, which is... Mm -hmm. so well, I remember that's what I was um, <laughs> saying. You know, this is how they are. They, You know, I, we're not throwing old White Wolf or indeed Onyx Path under the bus because as the additions went on, uh, these clans were treated with increasing reverence oh, and absolutely. diversity. Absolutely, uh, and this is uh, looking at looking at it from. I mean, I'm looking at it from the inception of it. From exactly, the, yeah. It, the there are some problems, and yeah. we, we've gone a long way to addressing them. I guess the the last teaser I would put regarding these clans is again. Let's go back to what the Sabbat are up to. If we're saying the cradle of the ministry is in Egypt and the cradle of uh, the Banu Hakim is in, well, depending on the source book you read, Syria or Iran, um, how do you think they will act? Mm. What do you think they will do when their ancient domains come under threat from one of the biggest sects that they have almost always been independent from? And some of this ties into seeds laid down in Beckett's Jihad diary. Some of this is brand new to V5. So it will be interesting. And you'll have to forgive us teasing information that's in <laughs> books that aren't the core. 
but you know that's good marketing you know <laughs> yeah uh, there's a lot of stuff in the core that ties into future events mm -hmm. so uh, we are doing yeah. a lot of we're doing a lot of teasing already on that book uh there is uh to make another Battlestar Galactica paraphrase. Oh, good. We do have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> I was also going to say that the exciting things you mentioned about, like, North Africa, I think this ties in, Mike, with um, the book of... Um, oh, why can't I think it? Uh, which is which book? Kindred of the Emerald Kingdom. Yes. And, and obviously, you know, addressing the issues with, like, Kindred of the East and how that book is. I mean, uh, yeah, there's... there's It'll be... In, it'll be good to see how all of those are retreated with yeah. this, this the intention is to, in the future to work uh with people from the region knowledgeable people writing about what they know yeah and not to exoticize and and you know from a distance do some kind of uh, you know less uh, less researched take uh, mm. on these things so um we love to hear from people with experience from and expertise in different areas of the world because those are the people we want to work about when writing these things. I always rib Justin and Kelly for putting tunnels under Venice. It's just like there would not be. <laughs> the place <laughs> would be a great skyscraper in Venice. Well, it's, it's, I have no idea how that stands up. Next well, it's, it's, Stockholm is known as the Venice of the North, and we have plenty of tunnels. Excuse me, the Venice of the North is apparently Birmingham, if you ask certain people. <laughs> well, let's not go into geographical. Yeah, this is the war room, gentlemen. <laughs> um, Mike, does that cover everything about setting? Is there anything else, any last question we feel we need to cover? Uh, I mean, I think that covers all the questions, but I mean, I think uh, with regards to this thing, all the things that we've mentioned here about V5, it's really important to uh, bring up that while there's all these like really cool new ideas, um, and new story elements that you can explore, some adjustments to particular clans. You can also still play uh, Vampire as you originally have for previous editions. You can still have a city mm. with a prince who's 800 years old and that, that sort of thing. You can still have a uh, Sabat game set in Montreal and use that source yeah. book. Um, there's nothing that really changes no. uh, what you intend for your personal game. But I really like V5 in this regard because it gives us so many new and very interesting options to expand our games. Oh, well, I, I'm glad you think so, um, because that that was part of our mandate. I remember well when Karim and Martin were first talking to me about this, and then when we were in all kinds of meetings with, with Ken Height and, and uh, Juhana and all the rest of the team, Our what we've wanted to do is just seed this book with as many chronicle hooks with as many jumping off points for new groups and established groups and yes we have to be reverent to the old material without a doubt we have to celebrate it we have to champion it and we have to expand upon it but it wouldn't be a new edition if we didn't put something new in. So Montreal is still a Sabat city as far as the canon goes. But if you want to say that those, the, all of the packs in Montreal, the majority of them, have embarked on the Gehenna Crusade, then do that because it means that your Camarilla city in Toronto can now launch an invasion of Montreal and you can play through a game of seizing territories because the V5 core book and the Cameron and Anarch book, they they uh, supplement different things like how to play in different parts of the city. You've got uh, city maps, I guess, 
carved up into different territories of different worth and different ways of playing your coterie um you know with a certain agenda are you a sort of war pack or are you uh, trying to take down the prince that kind of thing so i'm i'm very glad you think that because that's definitely what we were going for yeah yeah definitely mission accomplished so yeah i I think with that let's kind of move on to talk about the rules a little bit because again a lot of it's uh a lot of it's very similar to uh, the previous storyteller system but there's some new additions and uh modernization of the uh, rules which really uh make it very interesting and uh you know it still feels like the old game but there's some new experiences to be had so of course as people have probably seen with the uh different play tests that have been out in the preview documents we still have dice pools um they now have a, a fixed target number of you know six or higher and we're kind of wondering uh why this choice was taken um you know fixing the difficulty and then having these uh numbers of successes that you need to try to achieve and how do you feel that this uh improves the game overall yes uh i can give you a quick answer and that is take half mm. The reason we do this uh, is so that you can translate any dice pool into a difficulty number by halving it. Yeah. And statistically, every die has a 50-50 chance of coming up a success. Then a dice pool of six could equal the difficulty of three. The intent here is to create a game that has a one-roll resolution system. Even when rolling against an opponent, an NPC or SPC as we call them, you can reduce their stats their pools or traits to a single number for a really really streamlined and quick experience that's how we do it that's how we play it usually uh when encountering opponents that are you know less important they get one stat which is their difficulty anything you do against them you roll against that difficulty done the second thing is that uh by having the um um by varying the, the number of successes that you need to having that as a difficulty number creates a system that is less swingy. It allows you as a player and storyteller to gauge difficulties and you know be reasonably sure of how hard a thing is and not end up in, in fluke situations where you know, a random die roll upends the situation. So those are the two reasons. Cool. No, that's that makes perfect sense, and I can also say, by the, by you saying like you can just take half, um, I can see how that also more than likely will aid people uh, when it when we talk about how V five then mostly in the future will relate to um, to live action role play because uh, Enlightenment of Blood it was just simply hold up how many fingers have you got yeah. as your rating, bang done you know exactly. win or loss or have a conversation if it's equal. Yeah. Um, and that's that's great. I can see that that has a good one-to-one kind of, um, you know, it, it meshes together very well, that. Um, it, has, it has another, it has another uh, bonus as well in that you as a player can also choose to take half. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you know, they, they resent having to roll uh, for everything. Uh, they feel that, well, if I'm good enough, I should succeed automatically. And in this case, you can. If something is a difficulty three and you have six or more dots in it, that means that, well, you can just take half, succeed automatically. The added bonus to that is, of course, that as a vampire, you have your hunger. Mm-hmm. But as the hunger shouldn't really be a problem in 
these kind of mundane situations. Anytime you don't feel to deal with your hunger, if your dice pool is large enough, you simply do a take half, assuming the difficulty then is low enough and you don't have to deal with that either. Yeah, taking so, half to me is very much being able to roll, at, you, know, you doing the action, but having a chance to take a breath and a, and a moment's thought rather than doing it under duress or stress. Or as soon as you roll the dice, that's, you know, you only roll the dice when the music comes on, right? It's an exciting yeah, yeah. moment. So the system is very, um, in that regard, the system we feel becomes very fluid, very clean and very conductive to storytelling, which, of course, is the name of the system. And I think that fits in quite well, Mike, with the next question about combat, because mm -hmm. we've got a few things with combat. So there's different ways of resolving this. So do you want to just give us a, a few examples of how yeah. how the system works by either, you know, it's either one simple role or how take half works on it. And yeah, then what happens absolutely. when things get really crazy and you've got to beat up 10 guys and it's just you with an Uzi or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not, this is also something that is very, very easy. It's easy to scale and it's, it's easy to sort of, um, sort of to pan out or to really zoom in if you want to go detailed. The basic philosophy behind combat or conflict, as we call it, um, is that you should never have to roll more than once for a single, for a single um, attack. Now, an attack or a conflict can be more than just a physical conflict. We also have rules for social conflicts, which is more things like intrigues or a rap battle, similar things, and we should try to erode your opponent's willpower instead. But the rules are basically the same. You make a roll against a difficulty, the difficulty uh, being the, um, the opponent's, half of the opponent's pool, or they can roll the pool, it doesn't really matter. And the difference, uh, the amount that you win by, if you win at all, that is the, the level of damage, the number of damage uh, points that you inflict on the opponent. Then, of course, depending on the type of damage, that damage can be halved if it's superficial damage. And depending on the weapon, in the case of a physical combat, or on the bystanders who is actually watching you get humiliated, in the case of a social combat, you can also add a number of extra damage points to that um, once it hits your your track now um, you can do this very you know very detailed uh, and have both opponents roll their die pools compare them against each other round by round uh, you can also do it as a one roll resolution which is a way to resolve an entire conflict in one roll you can also go very detailed and start using different kinds of subset of maneuvers, such as whether decide whether you're trying to hurt your opponent. Am I trying to, you know, advance towards our goal, which might be something else than hurting the opponents, maybe picking the safe lock or convincing the audience to admit this new member to uh, the local Camarilla society, or uh, just block another purpose, another, another uh, combatants action so all of these things all of these different ways of resolving uh, a conflict can be used but they all rely on this simple um philosophy of the one role resolution we recommend that if you're doing a turn-by-turn -turn combat you can usually end it after the third round uh, 
by then it should be obvious who is winning and who is not. And then the side who is losing can try to make a concession and see if, you know, maybe maybe the player characters are losing, but instead of just, you know, fighting to the last drop, maybe the starter says, well, things are going badly, but you have the option now of retreating and barricading yourself uh, down in that, um, the garage over there. Okay, so they do that, and then the circumstances change, and you can move on with the story. So we have all of these, um, these different venues to pursue, depending on how you would like to, to run your conflict, and what kind of conflict you enjoy playing. In the case of 10 opponents, um, in the case of 10 opponents attacking you, you could simply say that these 10 opponents are all assisting each other. Yeah. And then you simply have, like, you use the basic dice pool of one of them, and then you add a, um, a dice for each of them that's supporting, meaning that you get an, the opponent would be a difficulty for every two people assisting the opponent, that would be the difficulty would go up by one, since mm -hmm. you're taking half. And then the player would just roll against that difficulty, a single roll, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I really want to highlight something that you uh, brought up there, yeah. Kareem, about the uh, social combat, because, you know, after playing through the horrors of Exalted 2nd Edition, <laughs> I have to say that the uh, the social combat that you have here is pretty elegant and ingenious, using the uh, uh, willpower as the health track for characters, and tracking basically their motivation to stay in the argument and also even just the kind of you know the enhanced damage that you mentioned of the uh the audiences so if like the prince of the city is watching this you're gonna be uh a little bit more nervous and mm -hmm. uh uh damaged if you're burned by your yeah. opponent it's really just it, it's it's beautiful in, in a bunch of ways <laughs> thank you thank you very much yeah willpower is a really important resource now because um not only is willpower your your mental health track, but you can also use willpower to re-roll a number of mm. dice uh, in a roll. And that is important because um, you are rolling hunger dice together with the regular dice. And sometimes these hunger dice cause complications, but usually these complications can be avoided by re-rolling some of the other dice. For example, you can defuse a messy critical by re-rolling the, the other 10, if that other 10 is on a regular dice. Or you can try to avoid a bestial failure by re-rolling enough dice to succeed with the roll. You can't re-roll the hunger dice themselves, but you can re-roll the other ones surrounding, um, you know, being part of the circumstances. And that is one way that we are uh, allowing, sort of suggesting to players that they can um, adjust their game. Because some players will like dealing with hunger to a greater extent. Some players will feel that they want to deal less with hunger or they roll a lot of dice, meaning that the hunger dice come up a lot uh, and they would need to sort of dial down their um, their impact on the game. And the easiest way to do that is just to adjust the amount of willpower that a player regains at each session. Mm. As long as you have willpower left, you can, you know, you always have the option of, of uh, sort of fudging your, what's the expression, fudging your bets or, or just, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and making sure you get out of those sticky situations where the hunger trips you up. Uh, whereas other player groups who might be playing with very few die rolls or who really want to go deep into the uh, the whole riddle, the beast I am, the beast I become, they could just dial down on the willpower regeneration and really fight, uh, have a game about fighting your impulses. All of these things are perfectly valid and, and uh, work as... Um, 
as a way of, of balancing out the system. I realize that I've strayed into another question now, but um... <laughs> yeah, no, I really, I mean, in play, I think, I think Mike um, with willpower, we, we really did see it as a, as a really important resource because I think the other thing it brings up is that um, first of all, when you re-roll this important questions, because you look at criticals and I guess we'll talk about that in relation to hunger and you said how you might yeah. want to do re-rolls to change the nature of your critical. But that may well mean you then don't end up with enough successes for what you need. Oh, because that's quite important. And we'll get to that in a moment because we have, I think, going through this uh, uh, in audio as well as in text will be quite useful for people when they're looking at the book about how hunger dice and criticals work. Um, and, and then also willpower, and we'll get to that with relation, I think we'll mostly talk about it in relation to humanity in a little bit, is also critical because it's about how easy is it for your character to resist going into frenzy so you have this this resource of points for re-rolls yeah you want to do well you want to succeed but also as you're using that you're you're getting closer and closer to <laughs> going off the rails and sinking your teeth in on someone oh but, yes um, so mike do you want to leave the next question yeah so hunger is a, a very interesting mechanic which obviously we've been playtesting uh since last summer uh with the uh, the pre-alpha that came out so how would you establish this good balance uh, in the game, but not having your hunger situation escalate too fast or really make the game, as Chris mentioned, go off the rails? The hunger system is a system that is really hard to, to balance simply due to the fact that different playgroups roll the dice um, with different frequency. So in a group that rolls dice, very very story driven and rarely rolls dice, uh, it's going to have a completely different, completely different needs uh, and, and need a completely different balancing than a group that basically rolls a dice for everything from making porridge to driving to work. And that is what I talked about previously with the willpower, that in part the hunger system relies on um, the group themselves, kind of you know playing the game for a while and, and then looking at the experience that they are getting uh, and then tweaking that dial to an amount that they feel is, is giving them a, uh, the best possible experience. I think that the system as it is now is a good baseline. It certainly has worked out for us um, in our playtests. And uh, in regards to the hunger escalating, we knew that we wanted hunger to be a little more of a risk management system than a resource management system. You shouldn't just, you know, you shouldn't have a fixed track where you knew exactly where you were, which is why we employ something called the rouse checks, whether we you check whether you rouse your hunger every time that you use a power. Basically, any time in the old game where you would spend a blood point, um, you instead in this game make what is called a rouse check. And that is just rolling a single die. And if it comes up, uh, below six, one to five, that means that you have gained another hunger point or a hunger die. Uh, if it's six or higher, it simply means that, well, you, you called upon the powers of the blood, but not to an extent that made you hungrier. So you just get whatever, whatever effects you were looking for, but you don't gain hunger, which is a good effect. And you can even use that, um, the most efficient ways of, of rolling this, if you want a really one roll resolution, is to just simply take a regular die of different color and then just roll it with the other dice when you're doing something that might rouse your hunger then look at that dice and see did my hunger increase as a result of this and then you add a hunger die afterwards so that's that's how it works then depending on your blood potency 
you are getting rerolls on that rouse check in different situations um, and different levels of discipline powers and uh, and so on. And then, um, I mean, we'll get to the. I think the the way it interacts with blood potency is very interesting because again, this is the idea that there's more more kind of um, axes of your character development because it's not just anymore about um, what generation you are. No. Uh, we have this this idea that as a as a character gets uh, older, their blood becomes more potent, and the simple idea of having a reroll really does uh, give you a, that. Or, or and it also interacts. Blood potency also interacts with other bonuses in the game that you that people will see. But it, it gives you the idea that the older vampire does have some. Uh, their vitae is thicker, and it has some yeah. in-game effect rather than. Yeah. And that, that's kind of nice because it also means the game isn't just about going and bagging someone that's a higher generation than you and diabolizing them no, all the no, time no, no. just to increase in power. So I like that there's a way that is that isn't the automatic way to power you you've got blood potency no with... i mean generation gives you generation gives you a span of blood potency that you can yeah. sort of lie between uh and and at a certain level if you want to go let's say that you are generation 11 and you have a blood potency of 3 now you will need to after that you will need to lower a generation if you want to increase your blood potency but mm. There is a span. Uh, I mean, even blood potency three is a lot. Yeah, yeah. We don't really see. I mean, we don't imagine player characters going above four or five at the moment. After that, you are your needs, your um, uh, your hunger at that stage is so um, so strong. Yeah, uh, that you are almost forced to either kill your victims or live off of vampire blood um, to function. But it's a great way to set up an, an powerful SPC or an antagonist and so on. Um, so we looked at blood potency. We really wanted to make blood potency not a simple, this is my vampire level, but to make it a twin, uh, a twin edge sword so that as your blood potency goes up, you do gain extra dice for disciplines and a, a reroll for rouse checks uh, disciplines. You get to add extra dice when you use a blood surge, which is when you add dice to a regular die roll. But you will also uh, increase your bane severity, which is the amount of damage you take from the sun, uh, the penalties you get from your clan bane, mm. uh, and a few other things, as well as the penalty that you get to feeding, which is, you know, slaking less and less hunger from at first animals but then also humans so blood potency really is, the, is definitely not something to to strive for in all regards you should know what you're getting yourself into when you start going on that road and then the other thing i was going to say about hunger was the the um was and we've mentioned this is about uh, the interesting thing with the dice mechanics is also critical so um, I think the idea that you've got different types of criticals. So, so when you roll two tens in the system, that actually it's not just two successes; it's not exploding successes. Actually, for every pair of tens that you roll in the game, that's actually worth four whole successes. Yeah. And then, if one of those criticals is a hunger critical, then that also means it becomes a messy critical. So. Oh yes. And then, and then the reverse of that is if you have no successes and you have a one 
on a hunger die, then you also have uh, a bestial failure. And these, I mean... In- well, I, have to, I have to correct you there, actually. Oh, sorry, did I get that quite wrong? Okay, no, the, the, the bestial failure occurs when you fail your roll. Right, yes. At least one of the hunger dies comes up a one. You don't yeah. have to have a total failure. You just... Right. So uh, if you don't accumulate enough successes... Yes, okay, yes. Roll, yeah, and then one of the hunger dies is a one, then, yeah, then that's a bestial failure. And those and those are interesting because I think I really like how those again help bring forth the the vampiric nature of your character. So the idea that they and those that they um, that you overexert in the case of a, if the critical um, and that 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 overexertion like means that the vampire really you know he he doesn't just punch he punches so hard he. He breaks the person's skull, or really, really like flattens it, or, yeah. or in the case I mean, of the... You, you succeed spectacularly, yeah. but you succeed as a beast would. And these interact with other things in the game called compulsions, don't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, compulsions are compulsions are a uh, they're you know a, kind of a um, intermediary. Uh, a system of intermediary complexity. We you don't actually have to play with the compulsions. You can have the bestial failures yield similarish results to beastly, bestial critical, and that you you know hurt yourself or, or uh, damage contacts and so on. But um, when you start, uh, if you play with the compulsions, then that's the result of a bestial failure, and that is that the um, the blood uh, and the hunger starts to subtly influence you. Uh, in a way that you're not quite aware of yourself. It's mm. kind of like when you're very hungry and you go grocery shopping and suddenly you feel like you need all of these things that you wouldn't be needing otherwise. And you yeah. you come home with all of these shopping bags full of stuff that felt really good you know, to eat at that time. But after you've had your dinner, you're like, why did I buy all of these things? The same thing if you're attracted to somebody and you... you um, you sort of get it into your head that they are, in some cases, maybe more interesting than they really would be, hmm. uh, or or um, all of these ways in which your desires of different kinds make you come up with excuses and give you these urges that you um, unconsciously follow. Those are the compulsions. Uh, as uh, in contrast to frenzy, which is just basically flipping out. In a frenzy, yeah. you lose control. A compulsion is more being being influenced, uh, much in the way that you know, um, also like an addict would be. Mm. Um, and the compulsions are different expressions of the vampiric nature. You know, being overly dominant, or or you know, getting a sudden urge to feed. And and uh, I think you got a paranoia compulsion. I listened to your. Um, through there and yeah that was that was i mean you made the, the compulsion come out of a messy critical but you know the, um <laughs> i was like yeah. they did that wrong <laughs> that's <laughs> critical that should be a masquerade breach anyway <laughs> no but that was really good the way you interpreted that that your paranoia makes you uh makes you hurt this man because you're in, you're interrogating him and uh that fear that you suddenly is flaring up in you translates into you becoming uh, unnecessarily violent to him and, and then leading into that. Um, 
so that was that was a really really good example and of course compulsions are they're as varied as the situations that they occur in we give examples and suggestions and it's up to the players and the storytellers to live out those but it's licensed to sort of be a bit evil for a while you know mm. uh let the beast out for a ride and while while not you know tearing the place apart as in a frenzy uh, and the compulsions they give you, basically, they give you a penalty to all die pools unless you act, yeah. you take actions to satisfy that compulsion. You might get the compulsion to to dominate somebody. Then you will need to win over somebody in something, just an argument or, or um, anything. And until you do that, until you establish that you're the best, then you're going to have uh, a penalty to your die pools. Uh, um okay quickly i think we've got a few last questions yeah. we can wrap up so one oh. last thing about just system because i think it's mostly the most critical system of uh, one of the most critical systems mm -hmm. of vampire mm, is yep. also humanity yeah because i think it was quite clear that sometimes people could easily play vampire you go oh i'm at humanity five so uh -huh. they look at the checklist of things which are sins based and this is the old school kind of humanity system and they go well i don't have to care about these i can now do these as much as i like with no consequence, I'm still at humanity five. I can I can basically be an arch bastard, and there's no consequences. Yeah. So, how has that been addressed? How how has humanity been uh, refreshed in this edition? Well, humanity has has got uh, it's almost a complete revamp. Um, we looked at a number of, of different things that uh, held the system back in in previous editions. Um, the idea of struggling with your humanity and not just your morality, but also your identity and your integrity has, has been a core part of Empire. I think one of the main draws of the game, but it's it's a shame how that system has often been, you know, perceived as just shackles as a way to inhibit the player and, and well, something that is more to be gamed around than uh, immersed in. So the first thing that we did was that we decided that um, we wanted humanity in this game to be less uh, dogmatic. We didn't want a fixed list of sins because obviously the game uh, is played in a number of different ways, different themes, different moods, and a, a story about a number of housewives being embraced and coming to terms with their existence is going to be different than a guy mm -hmm. than a guy richie gritty streetish vampire movie the actions which the players are held responsible to won't be the same but they will still be there there will still be actions that you can transgress against that will be against the the core themes of that particular chronicle so we um we have something we call chronicle tenants which is basically a a number of different sins uh, that uh, the group as a whole decides that in this chronicle, these are going to be the main pillars that hold up humanity. Mm. And uh, I mean, those could, we have, we have established a few examples. We ran, um, for example, we have the humanists set, which is you shall not kill except in self-defense. You shall not rape or torture. You shall not harm the innocent. Mm. Which means that those are the things that a player will risk their humanity when they do. And of course, how each of those pillars are defined and the different ways that you can harm people, for example, that is up for the troop to discuss. Uh, 
But you could also have something of a, a chronicle with a loosened street code in which snitching might incur uh, endanger humanity. Mm. Uh, not being shown respect and respecting others on the street and killing outsiders, people not um, not part of um, whatever uh, uh, scene, criminal scene that you're in. Uh, killing those might incur a penalty, but anybody else is fair game. If you want to run a more uh, sort of action-oriented um, story. But then we come to the second part, which is the convictions, which are individual beliefs that uh, characters, you, the characters um, value higher than these things. And convictions give you a, uh, they mitigate some of the humanity loss. Um, for example, if one of your convictions is that disobedience is dishonor, that you must always obey orders. If that is your conviction, but then the chronicle tenant says that you shall not kill. And somebody then gives you an order, your superior gives you an order to kill somebody. That means that because your conviction is that obedience is so important, that will mitigate some of the humanity loss um, in doing that. And each of these convictions are connected to a touchstone, which is a person that in some way represents this, um, this value to you. Hmm. Uh, and these are, these are very valuable. Touchstones are, are human beings that you sort of attach yourself to uh, as a vampire, either from your mortal days or people you pick up, maybe even just watch from a distance, but that inspire you and keep these convictions alive. Of course, the more convictions that you have, the easier you have to, you know, stave off the loss of humanity. But the more vulnerable you are to other vampires finding out who you care about and attacking those, uh, which can lead to drastic um, consequences for your mental health. So it's perfectly possible to play a vampire with no touchstones and no convictions, but then they will be more, so that their humanity will be more left to um, the chronicle tenets and, and they will have to be very careful to sort of act in accordance to those and that's that kind of i guess that makes sense if you're a particular elder vampire that's been around for ages because you might have particular convictions and tenets that you follow which because you've over those centuries you've yeah developed a very particular philosophy on yeah, yeah, yeah. on your immortality which kind of makes sense i can see how out of this system you can reconstruct even paths, even or well, at least something. Oh, uh... as if we planned it. Yeah, something <laughs> I know you and I discussed, Chris, uh, yes. separately. Um, we were talking about how um, how it's still possible. Uh, an awful lot of people have uh, clung on to the idea that touchstones prevent paths from existing, and I feel that it's quite the contrary. Um, paths are often so abstract as to... They're not necessarily unplayable, but you need an incredibly specific chronicle to cater to a path and allow you to use it effectively, such as the path of death and the soul for the previous editions. There's an awful lot of very uh, specific terminology in a path like that that's mm. quite difficult to uphold in your average chronicle. 
Now, this is all hypothesis. The Sabat book hasn't been started yet. But um, I know, again, Chris and I, we were discussing, again, hypothetical situation where uh, you replace human touchstones with rituals, yeah. with, with relic, with tattoos, with your pack priest, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, you can start to see, you know, it's this kind of mechanic can be expanded but have a nice central theme, which is humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this really stems from the inflexibility of the old system and the way paths were created to allow for different play styles. But it became quite cumbersome. I mean, I don't know, Matthew, how many paths were there in the end? Oh, I think, well, there's at least 15 um, in revised, um, including all the independent ones. And in fact, some of the independent clans have more than one path. Like the Setites, I think, have something like oh, three, yeah, yeah. three or four. I mean, if, if, and each of these paths, each path itself is a list, is a hierarchy of sins, a philosophy. There's a lot of stuff that goes into a path that has to be described for the path to function. With this system, you can just, you know, you can create an infinite number of paths just by combining different convictions. And I think the idea of rituals. Uh, Taking the place of touchdowns is interesting. Uh, the only thing that I feel is is needed uh, is for the rituals to, in some way, be. You need to be able to threaten the rituals. Yes. Uh, if it's a tattoo, then you just have it. Then it's just a bonus. Uh, oh yeah, there needs to be some kind of sacrifice. Exactly. Don't necessarily mean you need to kill someone. You need to be able to lose something exactly. for this to have any kind of importance. Yeah, um, I mean it's, it's a balance issue, if nothing else. But I think it's a really, really interesting idea and something that is very, very much worth exploring. That's interesting though, because again, that that makes I guess certain paths seem like your character can actually be threatened. Because I, I don't know whether certain paths have almost felt like they could be a, a get out clause for some you know, path of honorable accord was the yeah, uh, path of honorable accord, Grey Wanderer. There were various paths that basically. Uh, now, don't t- don't take this the wrong way, uh, which would be that I'm saying these are bad. I think the humanity. <laughs> no, uh, no, I think the humanity system, as was uh, and still is in V20, is is perfectly good. It's it stood the test of time. It works. That doesn't mean we can't do something different for a new edition. And likewise, a hell of a lot of people have had a hell of a lot of fun with the paths of enlightenment in previous editions too. And I, I you know, speaking for myself, I have. And with Dark Ages, I've mm. played characters on the Road of Heaven, Road of Bones, Road of Kings, all kinds of different damn roads. But. I think there's so much more you can do with a system like that to make it more interactive, a more active part of your character sheet. And this whole humanity uh, conundrum, I guess, ties in to what I've always considered the part of the character sheet that so few people look at. And when you imagine the old Vampire the Masquerade character sheet, you ha- it's split into thirds. So you have, oh, I guess, quarters, because you have your concept, nature, and demeanor, and so on along the top. You have your attributes following. Then you have your uh, abilities. Then you have your humanity, willpower, uh, and your virtues. So few games actually utilize those stats in the last uh, quarter v5 puts them almost to the top 
in terms of importance because it's no longer just a, a pool of blood that you occasionally have to check on it's now a hunger that you almost constantly feel it's no longer an abstract humanity rating that ties into some vaguely christian virtues this is these are potentially living breathing people philosophies that you have to abide by to not succumb to terrible frenzies and similar the, uh, all of a sudden, the what is, I guess, displayed as the heart of being a vampire in previous editions, but very rarely utilised at a, uh, I guess, tonal level, is in V5 pushed to the forefront. Because I, I would, I guess, ask you to think of all the published chronicles of Vampire the Masquerade, all the city source books, everything that's ever introduced an antagonist and the story hook, and how few of those ever really ask you to look at your humanity, and if your character is of a certain humanity, they can do this, or rather, um, you know, what does that tell you about your character? Uh, a, any uh, scenarios that ask you to make conscience rolls or courage rolls outside of the abstract, okay, well, there's a fire now, so now you're going to use this stat. Otherwise, you'll never look at it again. Mm. It's still a good mechanic, but I think that we have done a hell of a lot in this edition to make it a more a, a playable part of your character sheet. And I think all features on a character sheet should be in some way interesting to a game. And I was going to, I think, wrapping up, because, I mean, we've talked a lot about systems and, and going back to you, Matt, because obviously yeah, you've been a bit quiet because as Karim has gone through the the philosophies of, of dice uh, here. <laughs> well, I've been drinking um, whiskey. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, is how, for you, writing uh, for V5 and writing for, uh, you know, for the net, for the, for the other source books that will follow it and potentially for thinking about other books beyond. Um, how do you feel this, this this system helps impact the type of stories and type of material you can write so that you feel it, it really brings out the most about the vampire experience? Uh, one of the simplest ways is if I was to, hypothetically speaking, let's not say I'm doing it, but let's say I was uh, writing a book that had some characters in so uh, some SPCs that you were going to interact with in a chronicle. Um, if I were, if I wrote those characters up and now listed down their convictions, as well as any potential touchstones they have, mm -hmm. they are more than just stats on a sheet. They are all of a sudden characters with ties to potentially mortals, to activities your characters, your protagonists, might cross paths with. They aren't just a bio, they are rooted into your setting. And that's such a simple thing for me. The It's, it's a philosophy I think an awful lot of games now do, and it's something that I guess you could argue the World of Darkness games were, sl uh, were quite slow to catch up on, it's making the mechanics a, a part of play, an enjoyable part of play. They're not just something you roll against, they are something you role play. Mm -hmm. And for me, the refinements in V5, I'll hold my hands up and say they're not going to be for everyone. Some people are going to enjoy their previous editions. 
<laughs> but I do advocate that everyone gives these a try and sees how it affects their chronicles of vampire and makes them play slightly differently. Hunger, for me, is probably the most important one. And I, I first saw this in an odd way. I was playing a convention game. I wasn't running it. I was playing a convention game of, uh, I, I guess it was Requiem, in fact. And the storyteller, rather than just giving us character sheets with a blood pool that had been filled in to a certain point, gave us little red beads. Yeah to quantify how much blood we have. And it's such a simple mechanic as a visual aid, so people like that kind of thing. All of a sudden, blood became a more pressing concern. And I then played with the same storyteller, because I enjoyed his game so much, on the following day at the same convention, I played in a standard World of Darkness game with him, which was a zombie apocalypse. You only found out partway into the game. And we all had bullets, we had oh. physical bullets in front of us that we had to cash in whenever we fired our gun. And that started me thinking, well, we need a, a more interactive, a more representative way of using these entirely abstract stats on our character sheet. A blood pool means nothing, but hunger means something. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, it's bringing something that's very much at the back of Vampire the Masquerade right to the front. And it should make you feel like a vampire. I can even imagine, like, if you're writing a, a standard, say, scene in some, uh, some you, know, advent, you know, story that you can buy, when you go, and you're attacked by, you know, Vampire X in the plot, he, he leaps upon you, uh, and you put and you write down he's at hunger four mm. or hunger three, it immediately will impact in the dice rolls how that SPC is interacting because it is, he isn't just punching you, he is punching you and he is driven to kill because his hunger is so high. And think of it the other way around. In a lot of role playing games, the first resolution players go to is fight to the death. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so common as to be a almost it's redundant to call it a trope, but that's what it is. Someone attacks you, you fight them till they're dead. Now you actually have a mechanical incentive to try and talk them down, to try and evade them, try and not let your beast come to the fore, because if it does, you may not be able to control yourself after that. And what happens at that point could lead to a masquerade breach, could lead to you doing something absolutely terrible and uh, finding that you've got a soul resting heavily on your stomach <laughs> at the end yeah. of uh, a hefty feed but the point is that with with systems like hunger whether you're using it on your spcs or on your protagonists uh, systems like touchstones to ground your characters more in the world that surrounds them v5 is trying to get back to the incredibly humanist horror that was alluded to in first edition and in many cases evaded all subsequent editions of Vampire the Masquerade because now you have a reason to fear what you are and what you're capable of. It isn't all within your control. You can't just throw willpower points at it now. This is wow. something that's ever present on your character sheet and you've got to deal with it in character, which is really what you want out of a role-playing game. 
Cool. Right, let's wrap up this last thing. I think we've gone through everything, actually, rules-wise. I think it's quite clear what things also people will see are familiar or at least inspired by other modern, uh, more more recent role-play games. Obviously, Blood Potency looks a bit like something, stands a bit like something from Chronicles of Darkness. That's fine. Other, I mean, also the way the keywords and, and things construction. I've, be, I've recently been reading uh, City of Mists, uh, City mm-hmm. of Mists. Yeah, so I can I can see parallels between that. So, Mike, I think we're on to the the looking forward questions, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, we've already you guys have already teased uh, some cool facts about the uh, Camarilla and Anarch books that can be coming out soon, but. Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of mention about uh, what's on the horizon, you know, to support uh, Vampire 5th Edition? Well, uh, I really can't say. Well, <laughs> I... Uh, we can say what we'd like to say. We can, we can, I mean, I could tell you, but then we'd have to, uh, you know, use cloud memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, kill you with uh, the path of technomancy, which is the only uh, blood sorcery path in the core book. Absolutely. It's only Ectomancy. That's nothing else. Wow, gotta love that power, man. I really I really hope that with this new release of World of Darkness, the new release of V five, that the game grasps its global audience, that we see an awful lot of interest for something as simple as seeing City Source books produced in South America. I'd love to see a Rio. De Janeiro by night. Yeah. We already know that uh, there's a South Korean one uh, coming out, or at least there was last year. I've heard nothing on the subject, so I won't comment further. But the um, point is on this, I think that we have a very good opportunity to make Vampire as diverse as it should be. And I know I always blow the trumpet of Beckett's Jihad Diary, but I think that set such a good framework for a world of darkness not just a north america of darkness Hmm. because our faithful narrator travels every bloody continent except australasia because i just couldn't fit the uh chapter in and antarctica but you know we've got uh we've got an entire world of incredibly interesting creatures fascinating cities, wonderful environments, and lovely urban legends, rural horrors, and as I know you like them, Chris, folk horrors, all Mm. over the place, that we should be embracing in all senses of the word and weaving into our world of darkness. So I want to see fan enthusiasm. I want to hear what people want to see in their forms of books. And I don't want to hear that they want clan books and they want us to produce city source books necessarily or just chronicle books. I want to see radical new ideas of what you can do with Vampire because all of those books have their place. But I think the fan base has changed dramatically since the giddy heights of the mid-90s. What do people want out of a book? What do they need in order to make their games of Vampire better? So our plans are going to be, in a lot of ways, impacted by how the community reacts to V5, which parts they love, which parts they hate, um, which parts they want to find out more about. The intention is for all the books that are published to be playable. Mm. We want books that are actually usable in play 
uh, we want more stories and we want to fill them with lore sheets and all kinds of usable goodies so that both players and storytellers get something out of every product that it's at least uh, the ambition we'll see whether we get there but just so that everything that everything that is published should lead to actual play uh, in some form I think that's important mm -hmm. I was also going to say quickly, going back to some of the things in the books that are in V5, which I think we may have, we gloss over is also to reassure people is that um, character creation, I think, Mike, we're quite happy that you, it's quite easy to make mortals, like the the rule system set up that you, the te it's almost a template, you make mortals yeah. first, then you apply the vampire template on top of yeah. that. Uh, and there's also like other games, there's almost like group templates. And again, it supports the idea that your characters are built together to support the chronicle you're telling rather than just someone turns up with a uh, with a clan barley and it all it's all it, it, the game does actually the rule system does actually support quite a lot of different play styles. And that's quite obvious on first reading. I don't know, Mike, what other things you picked up on that? Uh, I mean, I'll have a lot to say when we finally do a full review yeah. of the book. Uh, so I'll kind of save character creation uh, until then. Mm -hmm. But uh, for you two gentlemen, I've got one last question for you. A question that we ask every single interviewee here on the show. <laughs> if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Karim, I'll let you go first. <laughs> yeah, I expected you would. Uh, if I would be a household appliance, uh, then I would probably be a. Uh, I would probably be. Does it count to be a? Um, what is it called? What do you say about that? A, um, a standing lamp. <laughs> yeah, that counts. That's good. You want to be stood up all the time. Your head would get it's very hot. More like furniture, isn't it? But just like standing there, looking elegant and bright, you know, and, and spreading illumination to people sitting down and wanting to read a good book or something. Then he likes lamps. <laughs> well, not yeah. making much of a sound, really, but just you know. Yeah, yeah at least you'd have a function. I would, I would, I would have kind of a function. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it would be a usually a, um, something with a bit of you know, a bit of antiquity, a bit of charm, and so on. Uh, maybe a little one of those uh, little uh, strings that you pull to turn it on and off. Uh, yeah, I say that. Uh, I would my household appliance. I'd probably be a tabletop role-playing game, which I know sounds like a cop-out answer, but I use my tabletop RPGs a lot more than I use my vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so that means by default, uh, my RPGs are household appliances. But I would like to turn the sort of Richard Herring-esque emergency questions back onto you, hosts, and uh, ask the two of you. Hmm. Let's think of it. We'll go for one of my favorite emergency questions, which is what is the most interesting thing that you two have found in the embers of a fire? All right, I got this. So this one time at Boy Scout camp, uh, <laughs> a kid threw a, a steel, it wasn't steel, it must have been like a galvanized piece of metal into a fire, and it the fire started to glow green, which might have been like the zinc coating going off, but it was just really interesting and a kind of a unique thing to see. There you go. See, this is a question that everyone could answer, I think. Everyone's found something interesting in a fire. Oh, I've burnt too many things uh, with well, yeah, you're, working you're in a chemistry lab. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, though I have seen stupid things involving fire and different ways people have, have tried to treat it. Um, I have had to, uh, I wouldn't call this interesting, I would call this health and safety. And I've had to, uh, when supervising, uh, uh, what, during my PhD, supervising undergraduate labs, uh, had to prevent a student picking up a, uh, a conical flask from off a Bunsen burner using a paper tong. So that's where you wrap it around the neck mm -hmm. of it, which is perfectly fine to do because it's hot, boiling, whatever's in the conical flask. But once the flame is out, um, that being the critical uh, situation to wait for, not while the Bunsen burner is still going. So I guess the answer to that question is I've found inside of a flame or in the burning embers of flame, I've discovered stupidity. Um, well, that's nice. And that's philosophical. I like that. I would answer lamp again, I think. Who's <laughs> <laughs> burned my lamp? It's approaching midnight. Yes. I, I, love, I love lamp. It's going to be my answer to everything. We definitely need to finish up here then. Uh, so, so if people would like to get in contact with either of you, what is the best manner to do so? We have a webpage called uh, worldofdarkness.com, www.worldofdarkness.com. And you could always mail whitewolf at info at white-wolf.com. Uh, I, uh, I keep an eye on that mailbox. So if there's anything you want to ask me, and then just drop my name in there. So those are, those are two of uh, the best ways to get in touch with us. Uh, we do have a white wolf Twitter as well. Um, at WW Publishing, I believe, is the uh, Twitter for that one. Yeah, exactly. I think you might have better, uh, better clear. It is late, Karim. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Matt, you, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm all over the place. On Twitter, I'm, on, I'm clack click bang, uh, which isn't a epithet I have most places. Uh, on the Onyx Path Forum, I'm in the Gentleman Gamer. On YouTube, I'm the Gentleman Gamer. And then, Mike, we can be contacted by what means? Oh, tons. Uh, our email address is darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And uh, we have our Twitter, which is at darkerdaysradio. We've got our Facebook page, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. And, of course, we're on Google+, Plus, still using that venue. So it's all good stuff. I definitely want to thank uh, Kareem and Matt for coming here on the show and talk to us a bit about V5. It's very exciting, very interesting with, uh, you know, some fresh new rules, some new stories, but uh, also a lot of uh, great familiar content. So really appreciate that. Well, thank you. It was a great time being here. Yeah, I've been so polite throughout. I've never corrected you to say that I'm Matthew rather than Matt, but I guess now I can say oh, that at this point to make you feel <laughs> oh, bad geez. for the preceding two oh, hours. Whoops. I, I've been silently hating you. <laughs> 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 but now you know. Now you know. I do, and I will always remember. And I hope the listeners remember. And to all of them out there, have a good night. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com.
you see, isn't famous. That's the black grouse over there. It's called smoky grouse or something. Ah, no, no. There's a different. There are different kinds of grouse for different seasons. Um, the famous grouse is the obviously the the famous one. Yeah, yeah. Black grouse is more of a winter one, but I'm I'm a counterculture. What can I say? I'm a I'm a Swedish edge lord, so I drink winter yeah. whiskey in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> I always see the black grouse as kind of the nemesis of the famous grouse. One yeah. of us. So black grouse, we meet again. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we should start the interview. Yes. <laughs>